Tonight's the last sermon of the sermon series. We've been talking about uh, the kingdom of God all semester. Um, and I would like to close this out with, with what I think might be one of the only ways um, to encourage you after all of the intense things that we've heard this semester. I want to begin by talking about faith and what faith is and what it means. Faith, as understood in the Bible and in the history of the church, it's, it's not an intellectual assent to some idea. It's not an agreement with some assertion. It's not even actually believing something to be true. Although surely that's included as something in faith, it is actually the act of staking one's entire life, staking your entire life on the person and the propositions of Jesus Christ. That's a huge claim. So I want to provide for you a word picture that I hope might help. Imagine, if you will, standing at the edge of a massive chasm, a huge, huge chasm. It's so wide that you can just barely, through the fog, see the other side. And it's so deep that you think there's a bottom to this only because there must be, not because there's evidence for it. And as you're standing in front of this gigantic chasm in front of you, is this rickety old bridge draping its way across the chasm through the fog to the other side. It's old, drab, unassuming, and surely not something which looks like its very being is for carrying something across the gap. Faith in our culture, I think, typically means standing over here looking at this bridge and debating and deciding whether or not you think it's capable of carrying you to the other side. And in, in, in this culture, we will form often groups and cliques around the various ideas about this bridge and the nature of the other side. For one, I think it's capable of carrying a whole mass of people to the other side. You, well, you might disagree. And we sit and we stand in apparent safety on the side of this chasm, debating the merits of each other's notions and ideas. You think it can't hold the weight of one person? I think it's 100 years old. You think the slats are probably made of cypress or something? I think the whole thing was made by one man. On and on and on we debate. But the primary point, of course, is whether or not the bridge is in fact a trustworthy bridge. And we debate all sorts of peripheral or silly ideas and notions about this bridge, but I suspect that we do so in order to avoid the fact that one of us will actually have to go out and step on it to find out when we stop talking. And so we just keep talking. This, I think, is what faith looks like in our culture. Biblically, faith looks quite different. It's not a set of agreements regarding the bridge, stepping out upon it. James, the brother of Jesus, made this comment. Demons believe that there is one God, and they shudder. Demons believe that there is one God and they shudder. If this is the belief of demons, even if we Christians share this belief, it surely isn't the mark of a Christian if demons also believe this thing. The act of putting your whole life on the line in the hope of, that Jesus is in fact who he claimed to be, that is faith. In other words, standing on this rickety old bridge, walking toward the other side, knowing that if the bridge falls, 
you've lost everything. That's faith. We can talk. We can debate. We can have our notions and our disagreements and our groups and even our cliques. But God would have us do that on the way across the bridge. Some of you in this room are honestly safe or seemingly safe on this one side of the chasm in this cultural idea of faith, pointing, arguing, debating about this bridge, postulating and theorizing about it, perhaps even ignoring the fact that it exists or trying not to think about it very often. You tonight do not need encouragement for you're risking nothing. I don't need to encourage you. You're not risking anything. You're standing on the side of this thing talking about it. Quite the opposite, actually. I think to you, uh, Jesus quite often warns that you might not be as safe as you think you are. I think what he wants is to awaken a desire in you for the other side. I think he wants to awaken a desire in you for the only life that's actually worth living, the kind of life where the things that we dream of are the very natural course of things. But of course, this would require walking out on this bridge. For you, I think, you on the side, I think this sermon, honestly, I think it'll be a little silly and it'll be a little foolish. Others of you, you have stepped out on these rickety old slats of wood. And you wonder, some of you might not right now even be wondering this, will it hold you? Will it actually hold you up? Will it fail you? Is it possible for you to actually get on the other side before this snaps and breaks? It is to you whom to, I want to encourage tonight. You who are risking much. I need to be honest, I don't have much to offer um, other than the words of Jesus, but they are the words of Jesus. So please pray with me um, before I get into this too, too far. Father, uh, I ask for your anointing. I ask that, that um, to preach these things, that you, they would be your words. They would fall in soil. I would take it in. That your spirit would grant faith, faith particularly in Jesus Christ, God, whom we know is faithful. Have your way in this room. May your kingdom come and your will be done. When Jesus began to tell parables about his kingdom, how excited do you assume the disciples were? I mean, when Jesus began to open his mouth, and tell parables about the very kingdom of God. Can you imagine how excited his followers must have been? This is God's anointed one. This is the Messiah. This is the very Son of God. He has come to usher in a new kingdom. He's come to tell us about it. This awaited kingdom, the new reality. The kingdom which drips with peace and prosperity. The kingdom which, when actualized, and we sang about this, We'll have no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering for the entire world. What, when he speaks, do you think Jesus is going to say about the kingdom, which he has come to bring and come to bring us into? What does Jesus say? Are you curious? I think they were. And Jesus would begin sentences with things like this. The kingdom of God is like... What can I compare the kingdom of God to? I will compare it to the kingdom of the heavens is like this. 
I imagine when he began a sentence like that, you could hear a pin drop. He was talking about the kingdom that he was bringing. This is it. He's about to tell us. What is it that we hear? We've been hearing this all semester, and Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is like a farmer. A farmer? Excuse me? A farmer. Yeah, farmer what? Uh, like this farmer sowing seeds all over the, all these different kinds of soil. What? And by implication, most of the soil where the seed falls won't even receive it. Wait, this is what the kingdom of God is like? Can we, can we try again? Okay, the kingdom of heavens. They're like this man who sows wheat in his field. What? And, but check it, at night, the enemy comes in and sows these weeds among it, and you won't even be able to tell the difference for a while. And you're going to have to wait a long time for these things to be separated. Wait, this, what? Okay, let me try another one. The kingdom of God is like a treasure. Yes, I knew it. This is the kind of thing we're looking for, right? Treasure. But hold on. A treasure buried in a field. What? All the excitement. This Messiah, this anointed one coming to bring news of the kingdom. And this is the news he's bringing? Can you imagine how disappointed and frustrated the disciples might be? They even pulled Jesus aside. After he began to preach parables like this, he preached a few. One of them I'm talking about tonight. The disciples pulled him aside and they said, Jesus, why are you talking like this, man? Why are you preaching in these parables? For some of you, this probably isn't frustrating like it is for the disciples. For some of you, this is probably very interesting. And the way that Jesus talks might be very interesting for you. For you who talk and sit on the side of this chasm. Because this is probably just confounding and cryptic enough to give you stuff to talk about for the next few years. To push back the need to make any sort of decision for at least a couple more years. But for those of you out on the bridge, like the disciples, this is probably agonizing. You see, the disciples left everything to follow Jesus. Everything. All of them left their jobs. All of them. Many of them changed their names. They personally had very few possessions and there was no immediate promise for them again in the near future. They were often very tired, sometimes so busy with what Jesus was doing that they didn't even have time to eat. Their entire lives had changed. Their allegiance had changed. The very reason for existing and living and moving and breathing had been altered and shifted and now it was wrapped up in this very person of Jesus. They were out on the bridge and it cost them everything. And their lives were dependent upon the very truth of it and on its ability to deliver on its promise. And if you are following Jesus today, if you're actually following Jesus, not standing over here on the side talking about Jesus, but following Jesus, you are in a very similar place. This whole semester, as we've been talking about the kingdom of God and what it looks like, have you been listening to the intense call on your lives if you want to enter into the kingdom? That you are asked to repent, to change, to turn around, to be willing to sell everything, to march toward your own death and offer your lives in service to God and in love of neighbor. 
Oh, and to center everything around a guy who died and was killed. This Jesus, man, he comes crashing into our lives, <laughs> overturning our relationships, asking us to change the way we think, flipping our ideas of culture and success and failure on their head, asking us to surrender everything we have and making a claim that we ought to choose him before anything and everything, thereby saying and claiming himself that he is the most important person, the most important being, the most important anything, period. These are the claims of Jesus. And what do we get in return? What is it? Like, what is this kingdom that you've been promised? What's it like? What's it like? On everybody's pew in the room right now, there's a number of seeds sitting on the pew. You may have not noticed them, but they're there. There's a ton of them sitting around. And if you can feel around for it appropriately, uh, can you try and find one? And I want you to hold it in the palm of your hand. If you find a couple, feel free to give it to somebody next to you. I didn't realize there'd be so much excitement. <laughs> but hold this seed in the palm of your hand, and I'd like for you to place it in between your fingers and roll it in between your fingers and consider for just a minute how tiny this thing is. Look at it. Seriously, look at one of these seeds. Maybe it's just a neighbor of yours who has one right now. That's fine. Just look at how tiny this thing is. When Jesus tells us of the kingdom, he says at one point, kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed. None of what you're holding is a mustard seed. A mustard seed is much smaller. Much smaller. Less than one millimeter across often. Mustard seed in this time was proverbially, proverbially <laughs> the sign of something small. A number of laws were written that would say things like, not even something the size of a mustard seed will pass. If this is off the size of a mustard seed, we will change it. It meant small, the smallest of small. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is something like this. And this is our dilemma. We, we, we surrender some shallow and vain uh, effort to be God in exchange for the real God. And what we get in return is something which looks more human, more earthy, and more mundane than we have ever seen. Like a, something like a seed. We get dirt and skin and death for all of our earthly treasures. Sometimes it feels like we look the fool. We get something which looks more like a seed than an empire or a kingdom. But with how much you have risked, those of you out on the bridge, don't you want a kingdom? Like, don't you want a kingdom and all that the kingdom brings? We're out here on this rickety old bridge having surrendered all by walking out on it and we're asking, what is it that we've surrendered all of this stuff for? Why should I be willing to sell everything? Why should I repent and turn? Why should I be willing to lay down my life for the sake of others? For a seed? 
This is what the kingdom of God's like? What does that mean? Jesus, when you open your mouth and begin to speak to me about the kingdom of God and all that you're offering, I am like waiting on tiptoe. I want to know. I need to know. I pray, God, that it might make my present sufferings not worth comparing for the glory that you will reveal in me. God, that's what I'm praying for. So what will you say this kingdom is like, Jesus? And he says the kingdom can be compared to a mustard seed. He put up this Luke uh, verse for me. Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. You see, it's more than a seed. Rather, it's a proper understanding of the course of such a thing as a seed. The promise is that this mustard seed will, in fact, become a tree. In the words of Kent Dixon, Jesus didn't choose a mouse turd or a grain of sand, or a drop of water, as his metaphor. He chose a mustard seed, because it is a living thing. This small, seemingly insignificant thing which you hold in the palm of your hand right now, this thing which appears dormant and even dead, this thing we bury rather than show off, the thing we hope for rather than control, the thing we nourish rather than manipulate, this with nourishment, can become mighty. Jesus' promise is that where his, king, where his kingdom is, there too is something seed-like, a small living thing which becomes a tree. We ought to expect then to see in the present reality of God's kingdom things which look very much like seeds, small things. For this is what the kingdom of God can be compared to, things which need to be buried, things which are not pompous, and proud, but full of life and promise. And this, of course, if you know the stories, is very much like all of them. It's like Abraham. Well, who is Abraham? Or rather, who is Abram? Literally. This dude was in a place called Ur. Does anybody know of Ur? And he probably worshipped the moon. And there was nothing special about him. And God picked him out and said, I'm going to make your descendants number greater than the sands of the sea. Dude was like a hundred before he had a boy. God, you've got to be kidding. I don't even know why you chose me. This is, it's, it's a massive thing, but the gap between me, Abram, and sands of the sea descendants, whom apparently you will bless all of the world through, whatever that means, I don't understand how you're going to bridge this gap. Or like Moses, an 80-year-old murderer who had a problem speaking. And God was going to use him to rescue his people out of the crazy, mighty Egyptians who've held his people in slavery for over 400 years and used him to build cities. You're going to use that guy, the 80-year-old murderer who doesn't even know how to speak very well? You're going to use him to lead everybody out? Or David and Goliath. Or we remember a baby. What? God comes to earth as a baby who needs his diaper changed and needs to be fed. Or the death of Jesus. How in the world can God bring his kingdom through the death of his son? This makes no sense. This is counterintuitive entirely. 
Even Jesus' resurrection. It was so significant that it galvanized the church. It is still today the thing in which we hope for. But how even with a small group of people in the middle of the Roman Empire, how in the world was God going to usher in his kingdom? Even though they were empowered by his very spirit, he just resurrected one man, Jesus. What about the rest of us? All of these things seem like unexpected small things, these seeds. I mean, they come into our world with all of the, like the pomp and circumstance of a Monday. That's it. Where, God, are the, 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 where's the lightning? Where's the roll of thunder? Where are like the mighty throngs of people and like the waving banners? I want your kingdom. And you die? I want your kingdom. And you come as a baby? I want your kingdom. I want to find the promised land. And you give me an 80-year-old who killed somebody who doesn't even know how to speak very well. And he's the guy you tell who your name is. And he doesn't even know how to speak very well. Well, that sucks. But then, all the things I'm asking for are the way of the world. The mighty throngs. The loud noises. All of these things are the things that the world says are great. But it's my suspicion that you and I, we have story enough in each of our lives to tell us that we need something better than what the world has to offer. Because it doesn't satisfy all of the pomp and circumstance of the world doesn't actually lead us to a better life. You keep trying and you keep thinking it will happen, but it doesn't. So Jesus says that something else is the way of the kingdom, something that looks more like a seed. This is at first, I think, important because we can be confident when we look at what we have right now and we see very small, tiny little convictions. And I see something like a fragile sense of charity begin to show up in my life. Just this fracture of forgiveness that I'm able to offer. When I see these things, although they're small and tiny, and they seem like they're just infantile compared to all of the promises of God's kingdom, I may not be quite as far from the kingdom of God as I think. When we look and see seeds, when we see small beginnings, we may in fact be right in the midst of God's kingdom work because the kingdom of God can be compared to something like a mustard seed. The disciples surely felt this, I think, as they looked and they saw this motley crew of invalids and children and uh, rejects, social rejects, following Jesus, picking up the scraps after his miracles. The crowds came, sure, but the crowds left. Read the stories. How can Jesus be bringing the kingdom when he's struggling to keep a crowd? If you've been following Jesus and you see that you've only taken a few steps and you've only just begun to sprout, well, this is the very way of things with God. But then, of course, I must ask, is that worth it? Is that worth it? Is giving up your entire life for a few steps a few minor victories, miraculous though they may be, is that worth it? Is surrendering everything you have and following Jesus worth it if these seeds do not in fact become trees? Can you put up the passage from 1 Corinthians 15, please? Paul says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
Have you heard this before? Have you thought of this before? If your only hope in Christ is for stuff in this life right now, Paul would argue that you should be pitied more than anybody. If these seeds do not become trees, is it worth it? I don't think so. I don't think it's worth it. We, in fact, ought to be pitied your entire life for some struggles and a few victories before death. You've thrown your life down for others only to die. I don't think that's worth it. So too, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, Paul says our faith is in vain. Likewise, I think, if we are not raised like Christ, our hope is in vain. If we are out here on the bridge, but it doesn't really go anywhere, or if it snaps and breaks and we fall, then all of our risk, all of our hope, all of our surrender, all of the cost of discipleship, simply walking out onto a bridge to die. I don't think that's worth it. While I do think we can be encouraged by small beginnings because this is the way of God's kingdom, I think we are actually only encouraged because of what these beginnings promise. I'm encouraged by the hope of these beginnings. We're encouraged by the fact that seeds will in fact become trees. That one day his kingdom will in fact come fully. And so while my promise is in the seed, my hope is in the tree. And I realize that, that we barely can make out sometimes the other side of this chasm through the fog. We know some of it in Jesus Christ. And what we do know in Jesus, we know more perfectly than anything else we see with our own eyes. And in this sense, we have a certain and sure hope of where to place our faith. This, in fact, I think, is the very bridge itself. That Jesus Christ is faithful. And that he can follow through on his promises. That he can sanctify you and me. That he can bring us blameless into the new kingdom. This new kingdom where heaven and earth are united. And I realize right now, and this I think is the core of our struggle. I struggle to see how the meager seeds of things the things we hold in our hands, the things that are just beginning in our lives, the things that are so small that we hardly count them. And we compare these things to the promises that Jesus says of the kingdom. And we have no idea how this can ever actually move us to that, to the very hope of our hearts, to the very things Jesus promises. Jesus, I know that you've given me this seed. I can even recognize that it's small and kind of awkward and it's just beginning and it just feels so fragile and weak and I, I realize that you're promising me these great things but I can't do the math and I think Jesus sees this too and I think that's why he gives us this parable to remind us that the very way the kingdom has come into our lives is like this seed it's just the beginning I for example am a seed my faith is a seed and even though I am often placed in the ground figuratively as a metaphor potentially for death and am often trampled upon in the sufferings that I participate in willingly, well, you see, I will become a tree. Such is the way of God's kingdom things. But this parable is not about the fact that I am a tree. It's not particularly about the fact that you are a tree or a seed. 
It's not even about the fact that the church is a seed and will be a tree. This is a parable about the very way of the kingdom. It's a parable about the very way in which God's kingdom works across the board. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Everything in God's kingdom is like this. Everything. These things, which we see as seeds, are living things. And when we lose hope, when you lose hope, when you, when you really struggle, we often do so because we forget the promise which lives in a seed that it will one day become a tree. Can I remind you, you who are out there on the bridge, to think often of the promises of God and to not get discouraged by the smallness of things in your life, but to realize that if something small of God's kingdom is anywhere in your life, then that means His kingdom work has begun in you. His kingdom work has begun in you. And he has promised that these seeds will become trees. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. And amen.